Hello and welcome to another episode of Slice of Pie. What is the pie? P-I-E, the psychologically informed environment. This podcast is a journey to find out what this looks like across domains, whether it's business or sport, the Oxford and Cambridge boat race, elite swimming or within education. I'm particularly excited to talk to Helen Davis this week as she has worked in each of the last three environments I've just listed. I'm editing this exactly 28 minutes before the Prime Minister's speech and announcements around the next stage of lockdown. It's an absolutely, let's try not to use the word unprecedented, it's an incredible, bizarre, challenging, uncertain time we are living through and I really hope those that are listening are managing to navigate these stormy times in your own way or even discovering some form of opportunity within the madness. Speaking of working within a whirlwind and often crazy environment, my guest in this episode, Helen Davis, worked as a primary school teacher for 25 years before a mixture of itchy feet, curiosity, passion for sport and conversations with elite athletes at her triathlon club prompted her to discover and then fall in love with sports psychology. We discuss her career pivot and the insightful parallels between the classroom of 30 kids and a boat crew of nine women, the demands of an elite student athlete, the light bulb moments when you've managed to get through to someone, whether a student in school or an elite swimmer in the consulting room. This is a truly brilliant insight into two wildly different environments and I couldn't have enjoyed this conversation more. I've maybe bigged that up a little bit too much, but why don't you be the judge? So without further ado, let's get into it with Helen Davis. Helen, how are we? Yeah, I'm very good, thank you. How are you? Yeah, not too bad, thanks. Not too bad. How are you managing to deal with our current situation at the moment? Well, I think like quite a lot of people really, I'm uh, I'm having kind of good, good days and better days and days which are harder. I have a I ordered a, a large pool, swimming paddling pool uh, to go in my back garden, which um, I'm really enjoying and it's been something new and different for this period, um, which is giving me <laughs> Giving me quite a lot of joy every day. I go in it every day and I always feel better for doing it. So um, that, that's been a big plus point. But I still have days where I, I you know, I, I find it quite difficult. I think that's probably a, an experience a lot of us are, are going through at, at the moment. On the paddling pool front, I think, was there a video of you on social media having hoisted yourself against the, the house or something, something like that? You'd created some kind of swimming training Yes, yeah, so, so swimmers do train with bungee cords in the pool, actually, as part of their training program. Amazing. It's hard work on the shoulders, um, and you have to be very careful because of injury. But a lot of people who are swimmers have been looking to purchase, you know, larger pools to be able to do just that. So that's what I did. And we, we created a bungee cord out of two old bicycle inner tubes, which we tied together. Amazing. And then attached them to some wall bars that we have on the side of the house. It provides a perfect bungee. It's been great. So as I say, I, I kind of write myself bungee cord swim sets now and go in for about half an hour each day to do them. Incredible. <laughs> <laughs> I know it's not, it's not the, the average uh, lockdown activity for a lot of people I appreciate, but um, it's giving me a lot of pleasure at the moment. I don't think I'll ever stop being surprised at people's creativity and ingenuity through this, this period somehow trying to recreate what they would normally be doing within the lockdown situation. So I absolutely love that. 
<laughs> yeah, I was just going to say, I um, it, it wasn't something that was the f- a first thought that came to my mind when this situation occurred. And I saw a famous open water swimmer in Holland who, on social media, showed a, a video of herself in this paddling pool. And that was really what gave me the idea. And I suddenly thought, oh, I could do that, you know. And uh, I spoke to a number of friends who were swimmers and they said, oh, well, let's get some paddling pools. Let's see if we can do this. And um, it's actually created quite a community um, of swimmers around this. And I've set up what I call a bungee course swimming club. And we share swimming swim sets together and bounce ideas off each other. And as I say, it, it's been a, a, a fun way to keep connected with the swimming community. Brilliant. The BCSC, the Bungee Cord Swimming Club. Yes. We'll, we'll, be, we'll be, lo- be looking up for the Twitter accounts. Coming to you soon. Well, look, Helen, thanks so much for coming on the podcast. You've got some really, really incredible roles at Swim England. I know you've done some work with the Cambridge University Women's Boat Race. You've worked with Commonwealth medalists and Paralympic champions. But it wasn't all that long ago you were in a completely different field. Can you paint us a quick picture of where you've been in the working world and how you got to this point? Yes, my my, uh, my career has uh, predominantly been in education. I did a psychology degree many years ago now um, at Cardiff University and I went straight into doing a PGC at uh, Cambridge University and trained to be a teacher and I was then a teacher for, or have been a teacher for the last 25 years in primary education. And in that time, I mean, I've, I can't miss the number of roles that I've had within in a primary school. I've worked in a number of different schools. I've worked in, I think, every single age group from reception all the way up to year six. I've kind of done um, coordinated uh, various different subjects in the primary cu- curriculum across schools. I have, yeah, had to be very flexible as a teacher in that time doing a multitude of different roles and I did have a break from teaching to have my three children I also had a break from teaching when we went to live in the United States for a while and I did some work there still within education but I placed volunteers from the corporate world into the public schools in Boston where corporate volunteers read to children in their lunch hour who were not reading at the grade level that they were supposed to be at for their age okay so Although I've had these sort of different experiences, they've all been in, in, in education predominantly. Okay, that's a hell of a journey, that. So you've been yeah. in Cardiff, Cambridge, Boston, that's- multiple schools, multiple age groups, multiple subjects. Flexibility seems to be a, a big word that, that's come out there. Managed to find the time to have three children <laughs> yeah. amongst all of that. And so how did the, the transition come about then to to sports psychology what was the the trigger that made you think about it do you know it's funny uh, having been in education for so long I have enjoyed or had enjoyed teaching enormously I felt it's been a very good career to, to do and to be part of and I've enjoyed a huge amount of it however I think I'd got to a point where I thought am I always going to be a teacher forever and I definitely felt and I spent a lot of time thinking about my, my own time in education, actually, and, and thinking, I, I, I really don't remember being given opportunity to discuss what other careers were out there. And so I just I feel like I naturally just kind of went into teaching because I knew that there were teachers and people needed teachers and it sounded appealing to me. Yeah. 
so, so I really had got to a point where, you know, I've been doing it for a long time. I felt I knew the job um, and what I was doing. And there's a lot of people who get very run down in teaching. And I began to, I always used to say, you know, I don't want to become a moany old teacher. That was kind of the phrase I had. And I'd said it for years. I don't want to become <laughs> a moany old teacher. I still want to go into work each day with a smile on my face and feel enthusiastic. And it came to a point where I thought, do you know what? I actually think I am becoming a moany old teacher. I felt like things were beginning to weigh me down a bit. I've been doing it for a long time and I needed a new challenge. And I think it was the new challenge actually that, that really got me thinking about, well, what else could I do? And then I got to a point thinking, well, sport has been something that's been part of my life ever since I learned to swim, age seven. I've been in swimming clubs for years and, and competed uh, competitively. And all throughout my teaching career and through having my children, it, swimming is something that has, I have kept going. I've kept going competitively with swimming and done a lot of racing over the years. And so it got to a point where I was training at Cambridge Triathlon Club with, I mean, very fortunately, with two women who at the time were in the top 10 in the world for Ironman. Wow. Which was a, a pretty, for one club, to have two people uh, in it in the top 10 in the world was obviously uh, very impressive. And they were great swimming training partners for me. I should add, not cycling or running partners. I was ne nowhere near their standard there. <laughs> but in terms of swimming, we swam in the same lane together. And we did a lot of training outside of the club as well. And after these training sessions, we would often go for a brunch afterwards and just discuss you know, sport and our training. And I was very fascinated by conversations that we would have um, in these meetings afterwards about their performance, particularly and how negative they were about swimming. And they were very down on their swimming. And it was almost like their races sort of began once they got on the bike and the swim was over. And I got really interested in this and just started, you know, as you do, Googling, you know, psychology of racing and sport. And after a bit of Googling on my part, I suddenly discovered that there was a master's in sport and exercise psychology at Staffordshire University. And I read the modules and I thought, that's really interesting. I think I'd really like to do something like that. And that really got the kind of the cogs in my brain whirring about, could I do something outside of teaching? And well, a few months later, I'd enrolled. So um, it, it was a pretty big transition for me. Love the um, the brunch chats with the the top ten triathlon competitors. Yes, that's a lovely in in combination with the the, the potential question over do I want to do teaching forever? And sometimes these these points where you decide to make a change, they can be a culmination of things that are happening. So it sounds like there's something happening at work. Thinking, oh, am I changing here? Am I becoming the grumpy teacher? then you're having the conversations with your your friends at the triathlon club. And sometimes it can be a combination of things that build up in order for you to make that change. Is, is that what happened for you? Yes, I think so. I am a kind of person who, if I get excited about something and if I'm feeling enthusiastic about it, I probably tend to not, I don't overthink it. I just kind of go with how I'm feeling. And I was very much encouraged by uh, Lucy and Susie and another friend Ed to, to pursue it because I obviously on one of these occasions I had a chat and said I've been thinking about this what do you think and they very much encouraged me to to pursue it and my husband was very supportive as well obviously I was still uh, teaching at the time and because it was a distance learning part-time course I thought I actually I think I can continue teaching part-time and do the course at the same time so it wasn't at that 
stage that I was going to be giving up teaching, it was I was going to be pursuing something else alongside it so that I could give myself the opportunity to think, is this a career that I would like to potentially go into? Is it something that I can actually do a study alongside teaching and, you know, bring up a family and have children going through GCSEs at the time and, and all that sort of thing that was going on? So I think if I'd have thought about it too much, I probably never would have done it. <laughs> yeah, that's interesting. Sounds like there was a kind of a point, a light bulb moment there where you almost saw the words sports psychology and something came together there for you. you go, Actually, that that really sounds like me. Yes. And, you know, it's interesting. I did not look at the career prospects of a sports psychologist at all. I very much thought I have no idea where this career might take me. But it looked interesting. I'm feeling enthusiastic about it. Even if I don't do anything as a result of it, I think I'm going to find it fascinating. So I kind of went with that rather than could this be something that I end up doing in the future. And I think I really went on my gut feeling of, I, I'm just feeling excited about this, so I'm just going to go for it. I'm in a very fortunate position in that, you know, I have a 25-year career in teaching behind me and alongside that of course comes salary and benefits and I'm married and have a husband with a secure job and so yeah I think I do see myself as very fortunate that I was in a position to be able to make that just those decisions and those choices yeah there's a a balance there isn't there there's a balance between your context that you've outlined Mm. and also a genuine interest and passion for something that you want to pursue now do you now that you've made that transition do you see the teacher in yourself sometimes do you catch yourself in sports psychology consultations or doing work with media and you go oh that's the the teacher Helen coming out all the time Pete (laughs) all the time (laughs) um yes I do I, I think and I think it would be very surprising if I didn't actually you know having worked um as a professional in that environment for 25 years of course it's had influences over me and it's a place where I've naturally sat for a long time and, you know, when I first started training as a sports psychologist, I was very aware of that. And I think I was, I was slightly fearful that I would be too teachery, that I would come across as talking too much, imparting too much knowledge rather than maybe guiding a client, but not being too directive, I suppose. And I think naturally I was drawn to interventions like rational emotive behavior therapy because it was educative in its nature. It had a structure. It was a way that I could teach clients a process to go through to help them with their thinking. And I, and I wrestled quite a lot, actually, with the whole kind of teaching practitioner. And, and, you know, through various conversations, you know, with my supervisor at the time and other sports psychologists, I think I've come to the conclusion that it's kind of who I am. Mm. Yes, I, I definitely feel there are moments where I am possibly too teachery. <laughs> Um, but I actually feel I've, I've become more settled with that and think I'm actually, I think I'm actually a better practitioner because I'm more comfortable with who I am. I'm not trying to pretend to be somebody else. I, I think I'm a better practitioner because I'm more natural. Mm. And if my natural tendency is to, to be more informative on occasion and have more of an educative nature to it, then I feel happier and more settled with that. Whereas I kind of wrestled with that when I was doing my phase two training more. Mm. if that makes sense it does make sense mm. what, what do you think can you pinpoint the the actual skills or the tendencies or the competencies from teaching that you think have transferred and really applied well to, to doing sports psychology consultancy 
I think one of the things it goes back to that word flexibility actually. So so one of the things as a teacher, particularly over sort of my teaching career, the the necessity to have lesson plans, objectives, being able to to decide within your class that the level of content that you are giving and how you're delivering it, depending on the ability of the child, it has become more and more predominant in terms of having to have evidence of that written down on, on paper. And I think as a teacher over the experience that I've gained over the period of time that I've worked within education is that sometimes you can have your lesson plan written down on a piece of paper, but when you're actually delivering it to a class, it can go very differently to how you kind of predicted that it might go. And I think what teaching has done has given me confidence to take a different direction if need be in a consultation. Well, you know, if something isn't working, I think to be able to say, okay, I'm going to change tack here. I'm going to do something differently. We're going to abandon that and we're going to do this. You know, it's something that maybe somebody's not understanding, something that mm. somebody isn't connecting with. So I think that's something that in teaching I developed over the course of my career, particularly early on in my career. You know, I've got to stick to my lesson plan. You know, I've got to do, do what's, what's written down here. But recognizing if something, you know, if, if the children were not connecting to the material or the resources or whatever that you were using then you still had half an hour left of the lesson you could maybe try and change something and, and mix it up and hopefully give them something that's going to be richer and help them with their understanding more and I think you know when working with clients that kind of gauging from somebody if they're connecting with what you're talking about or it's not going down an avenue that, that they're kind of feeling emotionally connected to at the time is, is trying to think about other ways or creativity to change direction to move on to come back to it at another time at that point when you're looking at changing direction when you're looking at changing direction within a, a session with an athlete for example mm. is that intuition that you, you're picking up almost through osmosis that they're not connecting with it or you need to change direction or is there are you spotting specific things in body language do you know i think it's a combination of those things yes so for example one of the things that i think is the kind of the teachery bit in me is that i i like to have supportive material for some of the things that i talk about with conversations with athletes and clients so i don't know for example if we'd been having a conversation on building self-confidence in a session as an example i've now created content that i will then share with a, a client post session so and it may be something you know some things that i think oh with that came up in the conversation i've got a resource on that that i could share with the client now there are some athletes who if you switch on the screen and show them something i can tell immediately whether they respond to that or they don't respond to that mm. there are some athletes that engage with material afterwards there are some that don't and so I very much you know from those initial conversations that I have with athletes gauge whether they're going to be the kind of athlete that that enjoys that or doesn't I mean I've had some athletes I've worked with and it just kind of evolved into it was pictures kind of only (laughs) um and and they would draw things they found that much easier to express themselves through through artwork than sometimes speaking to me so I, I think that's all about that relationship building in the beginning and it's body language, it's communication, it's response to what I'm talking about or what I'm showing them as to whether I then pursue that avenue with the athlete or not. Yeah, well, I'm, I'm very well aware at your, of your penchant for pictures because on the Zoom call, just as we started off, I spotted a, a rather tasty whiteboard in in the background in your home office so but I'm, I'm sure you find that a, a a really useful tool when you're working with with athletes to draw things out 
I particularly work with a lot of children in the teenage age range and to have them sitting down for an hour sometimes is it just keeps them they can get up on their feet they can do things on the whiteboard whether it be sometimes I just say you know just think about this just go and write some ideas down on the board you know it's it's just a way of again changing that dynamic and as I say I, I think this is part of the teacher in me to kind of mix things up to kind of try and make it creative draw out a different learning style in somebody because it might it might be something that they connect with more than just talking sometimes yeah and I think that's part of another thing that you brought up there which is the relationship building side of things Mm. when you look at kind of famous education or teacher-based movies there's always that bit where the teacher has got this very hard to get through to student but then there's a breaking point (laughs) where they they finally get through to them did you ever have that experience in in teaching and have you ever had that experience in sports psychology Oh, that's a good question. Yeah, I mean, I was in teaching. Yes, I mean, many times. I mean, possibly sometimes I would say on a on a daily basis. And I, and I think that's the what I loved so much about teaching was the creativity of who, who is my audience. And obviously, in a classroom, you know, you you have thirty different thirty different people, and and being able to deliver something that's going to connect with absolutely every single one of those thirty children is, is is a huge challenge. So, having the creativity and the imagination to to kind of just change something sometimes subtly in the way that you do something, or the, the way that you even the way that you move around the classroom sometimes. Mm something that is up on the wall it are all ways of of engagement so certainly with teaching I would say yeah you know on a daily basis I think I think with with working with athletes that comes over a longer period of time because you're not seeing them as much as you would do with pupils obviously in the classroom every single day Mm. but I often find with athletes that when they come back to see you and you know you've not seen them for a week or a couple of weeks that their kind of light bulb moments often happen away from the session mm. when they're applying what we've been working on and they suddenly say, oh, you know, and I, you know, I was in the middle of my run and I tried this or whatever. And, and um, I suddenly, I suddenly saw what that conversation that we were having was all about because they're, you know, they're applying it in their real life situation. You might not be there for the light bulb, but you get to see the excitement or the the positivity on on their face when they come back for that next session and they can't wait to to share what they've learned with you it's a build-up effect you know and the more athletes kind of engage and invest in the process that the, the sessions hopefully are giving them the more likely they are to see I don't like you know results but you know maybe changes or subtleties that come with just spending some time thinking about their psychology around their sports I mean, I think that's one of the biggest things that, that athletes who have regular sessions comment on is that I'm just spending some time thinking about this and, and I don't often do that. And I've got a concentrated period of time where that's all I'm thinking about and it's actually really useful. Mm. <laughs> or they find it really useful because it's just not something that they're tending to do in their day to day. Right then, time for those half-time oranges and a quick reflection on what we've heard so far. One thing that really stood out for me was the difference in contact time in her two careers. In school, Helen was seeing the kids five days a week for seven hours a day, versus working with athletes now, which may be once per week or even once per month. This has two knock-on effects that were discussed just now. Firstly, 
change may come over a longer period of time and I suppose this could be considered natural when your opportunity to work on stuff happens at a lower cadence. But it also made me reflect on the importance of working within a multidisciplinary team. This time constraint is one of the reasons that there is such a substantial body of literature and content in sports psychology about working through coaches. Yes, in some instances, they may have more credibility or authority with athletes. Yes, it's so important to get buy-in and integrate with the coaching content. But there's also a reality here that coaches just have more time with athletes. It also may be why, in my experience, the best consultants coach, educate and facilitate the management to be effective when they are not around to drive it. In fact, I went to a conference three years ago at St Mary's University in Twickenham organised by the Sports Chaplaincy UK. It was entitled Sports Psychology and Chaplaincy Working Together for Wellbeing and Performance. Loads and loads of sports psychs were there because working with chaplains who are in the club every single day or week meant that quality conversations and quality social support could be happening when the sports psychologist wasn't there. The second knock-on effect for Helen was around this idea of the light bulb moment and when you see it. In the world of education, light bulb moments happen on a daily basis and you often physically see them in action as something clicks for a student. Versus working with athletes, these often happen away from the session or away from the consulting room as they work on something that you've been collaborating on. Although as we discuss, that may still mean that you see that look of excitement or enthusiasm as an athlete brings that light bulb moment back into the consulting room with you to discuss it. Well, speaking of light bulb moments, there was certainly one for me in the second half of this conversation, but I'll leave that for the full-time reflection at the end. In the meantime, let's get back into the conversation with Helen Davis. One thing that I've noticed with talking to my my mother was a, a head teacher for, for many years and other members of my, my family have worked in teaching. And one thing that I've noticed is in teaching and in the context of this podcast, actually, teachers seem to be very, very aware of how the environment, the school's environment is playing a role in the ability for students to come in every day and, and learn. Do you think that has, do you think that's made you sensitive to the environment that athletes that you work with? are in and how often do issues to do with the environment come up in your your conversations in one-to-one consultancy it's interesting when you're working with athletes who are depending on the the environment i suppose that they're going back into Um, a lot of the clients that i work with are you know individuals some of them are individuals that are then part of a wider team i would say generally speaking when i have individual consultations with athletes who are part of a team most of the conversations or what they generally want to talk about are their own individual topics and things that they want to discuss rather than them as part of a whole team that might be as a result of I think sometimes go into those teams and talk to them collectively as a team so they they see the individual bit very much as as individual Mm. I would say for me personally the environmental context that athletes come with that they they don't tend to discuss circumstances within their environment as if 
as affecting them so much as their own individual thoughts and feelings and behaviors that it, it's very much something that they that they want to talk about themselves predominantly I think is what I'm trying to say there and that the what the wider context is often not something that they want to discuss or choose to discuss that's interesting so even though you might have a, a hunch that there's stuff that's going on in the environment they want to focus mainly on what's going on with them and so the focus of your work is very much within what they can control within their own individual sphere of influence yes i mean i think that's just my experience so far you know i I have worked with some athletes where actually where conversations have led to a point where maybe there are some contextual issues about how they're responding to that and that obviously influence they're having influences on their performance but i think generally people are seeing it as a this is something for me I'm investing time in me and I'm wanting to upskill myself which is fine you know I want to be guided by the athlete it's interesting you ask that question actually because I don't think I've actually really considered that particularly before but now that I am I do think that most people wanting to talk about themselves predominantly rather than their, their their kind of environment yeah, and I suppose in the context of the consultancy, the one-to-one stuff, if athletes have reached out to you with a problem, it's probably something that they've been sat with for a while and they really need to get off their chest and, mm. and troubleshoot that with someone else. And quite often those, those really intense issues tend to circulate around a kind of a concept to do with the self or, or me. Yeah, I think so. Absolutely. I, I think another thing I was going to say, which I just think is an interesting question, is a lot of athletes have a lot of loyalty to their their coaches or their and their coaching team and I think particularly for young people they can be difficult conversations if they were having problems or issues with coaches and uh, I think as a young person that's that's quite hard to open up about because obviously they are limited by the location where they live parents taking them to their club or, or whatever it is that they're going to so maybe that they don't have other choices so they just kind of get on with the situation that they find themselves in so I think for young people that's quite challenging for sports psychologists to tease out anything that potentially could be a problem there because I do think it's their world so if a young person they, and they don't have the experience of a, a wider you know club network necessarily there's something there around kind of only knowing what you know mm, yeah what was that classic English literature uh, line? Is it if you only know England of only England knows? Something like I probably butchered that. Yeah. But um, <laughs> I suppose it cuts both ways as well. If you've only known one environment, you potentially are less aware of the elements that could be improved in that environment in order to facilitate better well-being or better performance. But also, you you might be unaware of how amazing that environment is compared to others because you don't have a a reference point. No, absolutely. And I think, um, you know, for some athletes who end up moving environment for various reasons, if they've, you know, they've moved house or they've been able to have that opportunity, they then have a comparison point and they then can look at previous environments and think, well, what did I learn from that? And what am I now learning? And what are the good bits and what are the bad bits? And you say it's a build up of experience. 
Yeah, something interesting there in the, the the benefit of starting to take your career in a, a nomadic direction. I mean, you yourself mentioned the number of different schools you've worked for and the different age groups and the different subjects. There was a um, a blog post that I read a few years ago on the career trajectory of a, a strategist in marketing. And the guy that wrote the blog post was comparing it to the old, very old trades, like being a, a goldsmith. There'd be three different mm-hmm. levels. There'd be your trainee, your journeyman ticket and then your master so you would train in one let's say goldsmithery uh, you can see that i know everything about the the goldsmiths terminology there <laughs> but you you get your your trainee ticket with a, a master and then you can't get to master level unless you go off on this journey to start learning in different places around your town around the county or around the country and only once you've learned from other masters and started to triangulate what works what doesn't work and and how you feel you can do it the best, only then can you actually apply to get the master's ticket. I think there's something quite interesting in that, you know, these very, very old trades and how that applies in modern day to you building your own skill set through being in different environments and seeing how it works in different places. Yes, definitely. And I think that's very true in teaching, visiting other schools, talking to other teachers. I've learned so lot from other teachers over the years, going into other schools, getting ideas. And I think, you know, use other people's ideas if they're good ones, then go for it and apply them in, in your setting. I feel very much the same in sports psychology. You know, I've been, I'm very keen to talk to other sports psychologists a lot of the time, just for that reason, because I, I found it so valuable in teaching. I want to do the same as a sports psychologist, I want to learn from other people. I want to hear how they're doing things, how they how they feel that they best work with clients. So I'm all for, for sharing and using other people's ideas and trying them out and seeing if they work for you. I think that you can see that culture has come through a lot in coaching. You've seen a lot of football managers like Gareth Southgate cross-pollinating his ideas by meeting up with Eddie Jones. I know Stuart Lancaster, after he left England, went on a bit of a, a sporting coaching pilgrimage around the world, went to learn from NFL coaches. And I've heard of a few sports sites making the trip over to Bill Bauer to learn from, from the sports sites over there in their academy because Bill Bauer can only pick from that Basque region. And yet they've been in the, the Spanish top flight for, for many, many, many years with that constraint because they're so good at developing young people. So I can kind of see this pilgrimage happening in and around elite sport within coaching. It'd be interesting to see whether that, that becomes more prevalent in sports psych. To be constantly learning in, in whatever career that you choose to do is well worth the investment. It develops you. It, it means that you're being ongoing. It means that you're being reflective. It means that you're evolving as you move through, which hopefully is, is only going to make you better in whatever discipline you choose to work in. Do you feel like the more sports and the more athletes that you've worked with, you've been able to start triangulating patterns across all of those different domains? I do feel that. I feel very fortunate to work in a really diverse set of sports, which obviously is very fascinating. But in terms of the issues that people have in the performance setting, absolutely, there are similarities across different sports. Yes, depending on the the environment that the sport has, that in itself will bring different challenges. But um, it certainly has helped me in terms of becoming more confident, I think, as a practitioner, is seeing those similarities across the performance context with the athletes that I've been working with. And I would say as well, depending on the, the level 
of athletes. There's a lot of these of common issues that, that athletes have, whether they're, you know, recreational athletes or full-time professional elites. So going on to going on to one environment with which you've spent a bit of time in over the last couple of years, which I think would be really interesting for people to to hear about, obviously within the bounds of client confidentiality, et cetera, et cetera, is, is the work that you've been doing with the Cambridge Women's University boat team. Uh, sadly, the race won't be on this year, but what key challenges in that environment for those student athletes? Because it's quite a unique situation, isn't it? Yes, it is. I do think it's a very unique performance context that the women's boat teams um, work in. So I tend to work with them from the start of the university term in sort of end of August, beginning of September. And then I work through with them to the boat race, which tends to be kind of end of March, early April, depending on when the date has been set. So I spend quite a lot of time with the athletes and the coaching team and the multidisciplinary team. And, you know, I'm now on my third year working with them. And I'm always astonished by what these athletes go through on a day to day. So so these are athletes who are getting up at sort of four, five o'clock in the morning and they're getting the sort of five thirty train mm. because they don't train in Cambridge. They actually train in Ely, which is a fifteen minute train journey away. So they then get up and they're spending two hours on the water training in the morning. They then rush back, get on the train, get on their bikes and then they're in lectures. So they're then in lectures till sort of four or five o'clock and then they go back to the boathouse in the middle of in the centre of Cambridge where they have another two hour session where they're erging strength and conditioning. And then at the end of all that they then have to eat, <laughs> you know, do all their academic work and then they're back up again the next morning and, and they do this pretty much seven days a week. So they have this very heavy training load balanced with heavy academic careers. Some of them are undergraduates some are masters, some are PhD students. So they obviously have their own challenges within that. So they're they're obviously training very hard. And then really from about February onwards, media attention begins in the build-up to the boat race, which for for athletes who who are unknowns, really, they're they're, they're unknowns in terms of the sporting world, they're very much then thrust into the limelight with a series of interviews and articles, Mm -hmm. television, in the lead-up to the boat race. And then during boat race week, it's an incredible experience for the athletes. It's, it's, I sort of describe it as a bit of a circus, really. I've been down to the, for the boat race and I normally spend about five days down there with the athletes. And it is an experience like no other for them. And they really are very exposed. For those who, who've experienced the boat race in Putney, it slightly takes over the, the area. And wherever they go, they're stopped by people. They have tourists wanting to take their photographs. Um, they're fortunate enough to sort of restaurant owners are coming out saying, come in here, we'll give you free drinks. And, <laughs> it's something else, isn't it? You know, it, it really is. Some of them, of course, love that attention and, and some of them find it very, very difficult. And there's a real spectrum of feelings about that. But it, it's a very unique performance environment in the lead up to what is their biggest race of the year. Yeah, very interesting. You, you've got the, the academic challenge the sport challenge the media challenge there might be other challenges involved with the challenges that you see quite often with people moving away to university anyway by being away from their family for the first time or if they've Mm. they've come over from another country there's a lot of international athletes in the boat race isn't there coming from other countries so suppose there's kind of a big layering of challenges there to to deal with 
There really is, and, and very much my role, particularly in the in the beginning, is you know helping to maintain well-being and to, and to help students kind of navigate that this change of lifestyle that they have had. Most of them have never done the level of training that they that they do once they arrive at the university. It's a really big step up, as you say, for some of them leaving home for the first time. That that in itself brings challenges. You know, moving into college accommodation when you've got other undergraduates living around you on the same floor who are not doing sport and who are doing lots of typical things that undergraduates do in their first <laughs> term at university, going out, getting drunk, coming home late at night and making a huge amount of noise and playing music is not great for athletes who are getting up at five o'clock in the morning and have the, the physical and mental exertion that they have during their day. So there's, there are challenges there as well. And as you say, you know, a number of the athletes do come from abroad and are moving to a new country for the first time, finding their feet, yes, in terms of the rowing, but but also within their academics. And the rowing takes away a huge amount of time for socialising. So that can be quite difficult to make social connections outside of rowing as well. Mm. Now, one of the, the aims of the podcast is to make connections between different environments. And I'm going to attempt to put you in a difficult position here and make a big leap of connections between your life as a teacher in the education world and the environment of the, the women's boat race leading up to boat race day. Now, you might have to use some of that famous creativity and imagination, maybe start scribbling on the whiteboard. <laughs> But are there even some, even if you have to be creative with it, are there even some, but even some links that you can see from those two environments? Yes, I think in the, the build up to any event, whether that be at school or, uh, you know, or whether that be, be the boat race, I think both environments have a continual ongoing kind of reflection about the process that they're going, that they're going through. Mm. Um, so, and that it's actually a, a kind of collective process in the school environment that would be through conversations through investment and effort from the pupils and the staff to kind of coordinate together to to, to give children the best possible outcomes whether that be in a fat paper or a school play mm. um, but but in the boat race as well that time for investing in that consistency of approach means that when they get to the moment where they're going to be performing, they've trusted in the process that they've gone through and that there is a confidence that they are as prepared as they can be. You know, teachers are inbuilt in terms of preparing children for an exam, mm. for, as they, even for a school play, you know, that there are processes that they go through and that children learn to trust that I can stand here and I can perform to my mum and dad, you know, in a school play or I can get my 20 spellings down because I've learned them at home and I've practiced them. And it's the same kind of level of trust and, and confidence in the process that the women have when they're walking out, yes, in front of the world's media, but they're still going out there. They're still aiming to race from A to B as fast as they can with what their outcome goal is in terms of the boat race. So I think you can actually, hopefully I've captured there the, the, the two environments and how actually they can have a similar process. Yeah, the parallels that, that you've mentioned there that I've written down, a kind of ongoing process, mm. ongoing process characterised by collectivity mm -hmm. in terms of the people involved working together and being reflective as you do that. And then a parallel in terms of you've got two pools of, of people in both environments there. You've got people who are supporting those who are the ones who are going to be performing. So in the education domain, you've got mm. 
the children who are going to be performing their tests mm-hmm. and you've got the athletes in the boat race. There's always going to be a gray area around performance because as a support staff, you're also doing a performance in how you support someone. If you put that for a side for a second, you've got those two pools of people and, and preparation seem to be the big word there. So you've got kind of leading up to big moments. So that an exam for someone doing SATs or, or GCSEs or A-levels, it's a huge moment in their life. And, and so is a boat race. And so it's the kind of the preparation leading up to that to make, to make them feel like they can meet the challenges on offer. Absolutely, you know, and, and talking to both pupils and, and athletes about, you know, emotionally preparing for that moment. Yes, they're physically preparing so that they are able to feel like they can get the best out of themselves when that moment comes. To just expect people to be able to do that is unrealistic, to do it as effectively as possible. The more that goes into that reflection and involvement collectively, I think, in the journey towards that point, hopefully gives the athlete and the people the, the trust that they can perform to their best on the day. Mm. Well, I've put you in a difficult spot there in terms of making connections between two very different environments, but I think you've done a great job there. Well, thank you. <laughs> I think these are the types of these are the types of insights that hopefully are going to make this podcast valuable for people to listen to. Just to finish, or just as we're getting towards the end, I just want to ask you the question I'm asking most people on the, the podcast absolutely no right answer just very interested in the different perspectives and viewpoints that people bring to the answer but what does a what does a psychologically informed environment mean to you so for me psychologically informed environment is creating uh, the environment that allows individuals or groups to thrive i very much believe that that's a collective process that it also it takes time and investment and effort and it's an ongoing process because it's an ongoing process you then have chances to reflect and I believe that that reflection allows you to kind of evolve as you go through which hopefully then develops a consistency of approach possibly through you know sufficient guidance and leadership that can kind of promote that what I call a kind of proactive culture. So the pie for you is where individuals or groups can thrive an ongoing process characterized by reflection which allows us as a as a team to evolve as we go through a consistency of approach from leadership and one that is proactive yes that's captured very well yes great okay that's going into my it's <laughs> going into my little bank of high <laughs> definitions from those that have been on so thank you for that um look thanks again helen for coming on the podcast and and giving up your time For those who want to follow more about what you're doing, because I know you've got some really interesting projects that you're working on, like the the Iron Mind series of videos, where can people follow you and keep up to date with what you're doing online? So my website is thinkbelieveperform.co.uk. And there you'll see a number of different samples of, I guess, of of work that I've done. And Iron Mind is a, a tab on there that you can click through to. So Iron Mind is a series of six videos that um, help mentally prepare Ironman athletes for races. And yeah, all the information that you can see about each video and what, what each video contains is, is on there. There's also quite a lot of work on my website, the work that I do for Outdoor Summer magazine, which is an independent magazine celebrating open water swimming achievement. And uh, I do a lot of articles for them each month. And there's a number of them on there that you can read as well. Brilliant. Well, look, thanks so much again. And well, best of luck for the rest of this, this very challenging period. 
Well, thanks, Pete, and thanks for having me on. And I hope listeners found the, the viewpoint from education and performance interesting. As always, if you are still listening, thanks for joining me for another slice of pie. And if you're an iOS listener or an Apple podcast listener and you've not done so already, if you could leave a review on iTunes, that would really help others find out and discover the Slice of Pie podcast. And that would be hugely appreciated. So what was my light bulb in that second half worth reflecting on? Well, like Helen, most performers that I have worked with have not sought out private sports psychology consultancy because of a primarily environment issue. Most are because of issues with confidence, performance anxiety, fears about contracts, uncertainties about the future, or not developing at the rate they would like. As Helen says, you could bucket these as primarily individual issues that they want to work on, and I suppose this suggests that a number of things might be going on. They might have issues to do with the environment, but don't bring these up because they don't think that their sports psychologist is able to help with that. They may realise that there are issues with the environment, but feel an external locus of control or a lack of control or see no need to even try to control or affect these factors. Or door number three, they may be completely unaware of how the environment is affecting what they do from a performance or well-being standpoint. In an episode I'll be putting out in a couple of weeks, I speak to a very experienced tennis coach and performance tutor for the LTA, Chris Souter, where we talk about how many athletes develop through a system or with a coach, which is the only thing they know. And this can be both positive and negative, helpful or unhelpful. It, I suppose it depends on the context. For athletes that move clubs or teachers that move schools, recruitment consultants that move agencies, Once you have performed in one or two different environments, you can start to compare and contrast or triangulate what you think helps or hinders you to do your job. So this was summarised in the Rudyard Kipling quote that, as I suspected, I made a right pig's ear off. If you want to know the exact quote, it is, what do they know of England who only England know? This phrase was written by Kipling to emphasise the indifference or even contempt that Englishmen showed towards those outside of the British Empire, even whilst that other world was one that was instrumental in maintaining their lives. This phrase has even been adapted for sport, famously by C.L.R. James in his cricket book, Beyond the Boundary. What do they know of cricket who only cricket know? My father only quoted this quote to me very recently, so he'll be disappointed. I fluffed my lines there, so if you're listening, Dad, sorry for that. Finally, we only dipped our toe in the water of the incredibly interesting world of the student-athlete, which sounds like quite some lifestyle. Work, train, study, work, train, study, exams, compete. Now this is right in the wheelhouse of TASS, T-A-S-S, which stands for the Talented Athlete Scholarship Scheme. It's funded by Sport England and they help talented athletes to balance the demands of sport and studies. And I'm hoping to speak to someone from TASS very soon in order to dig into this fascinating world where performance domains of education and sport collide. In the meantime, thanks again for listening and have a great week. 